SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing Show 38 with guest Andy Leonard. Our guest today is Andy Leonard. Andy is a solid quality mentor, a SQL Server database and integration services developer, SQL Server MVP, and an engineer. He's co-author of Professional SQL Server 2005 Integration Services, of Professional Software Testing with Visual Studio 2005 Team System, Tools for Software Developers and Test Engineers, the MCITP Self-Based Training Kit for Exam 7441, Designing Database Solutions by Using Microsoft's uh, SQL Server 2005, and the recently released ebook Mastering Visual Studio Team System Database Edition, Volume 1. Andy founded and manages vsteamsystemcentral.com and maintains two blogs there, Applied Team System and Applied Business Intelligence. He also blogs for sqlblog.com, Andy's background includes web application architecture and development in VB and ASP, uh, SQL Server integration services, database uh, where, data warehouse development using SQL Server 2000-2005 and test-driven database development. So welcome, Andy. Thank you, Greg. What I do with everyone, first up, is I get you to just describe how did you ever come to be involved with SQL Server? Well, I was standing really close to the server when they uh, let the SQL Server guy go. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, that, that's, that's sort of true. They, uh, they actually reassigned a, a SQL Server person on a, a data warehouse team I was working on, and my job was, was the web developer. I was doing um, actually doing business objects report uh, administration, and um, I, was, I was done with my part of that project, and we... Um, realized we needed to reassign the SQL Server guy. He was doing a much better job at developing C-sharp reports. That was his passion and his talent. And I was the only other person on the team that had the word SQL Server together on their resume. So I qualified as as the SQL Server person. And it, it was a large data warehouse project um, for that day and, and really for now. It was um, 1.6 terabytes in SQL Server 2000. And this was about five years ago. Yeah. So... Yeah, it's interesting when you talk about size. The uh, uh, whenever I see discussions on large and small at the moment, yeah, the terabyte mark still seems to be the the boundary at which people start to talk large now. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I, I I definitely think there's a uh, there's a threshold in SQL Server where the database performs differently um, below that than than above it, and. Um, you know, it, it's uh, I, I, I had no experience prior to that with uh, very large databases, <clears throat> and I, I, of course I gained experience very quickly. <laughs> I was yeah. I was attempt to perm, and you know was was told by my director that if if I made it work, uh, she'd hire me. 
And, um, it it certainly makes you. It certainly makes you think much longer and harder before making minor changes. Oh, there are no minor changes <laughs> <laughs> in a database that size. So yeah, there was it was um, you know not unusual to have uh, have a have a uh, apply a primary key, um, you know, a clustered key across five columns take 24 hours. That was yeah. just not unusual at all. So, yeah, you know, learned a lot about it. Um, got a lot of experience. I, I'm still learning. Uh, I'm sure that'll come up in the, the topics we discuss, but I uh, really enjoy the field. Um, I found it, it moves at a, at a different pace from development. Um, it's more comfortable to me. I, I never thought I'd, I'd be doing database work. I always like software development, but I've really gotten into it, and I enjoy it a great deal. Yeah, that's great. And so, listen, the thing that we were mostly going to talk about today is database uh, testing or in, speci- uh, in specific, I think, unit testing. And if you look, if I look at the industry at the moment, I've, I spend a bit of time in both developer camps and and sort of the database DBA camps. Now, in developer camps, it seems to be game over. Every, everybody is heavily involved, or the majority are now heavily involved in unit testing. I wouldn't say that they're all involved in test-driven development. I mean, that's that's a different story. But right. certainly most are into now recognizing the, uh, the point and value of unit testing, whereas... When I put the other hat on and I get to the database side of the world, uh, it, it's almost rare to find anybody who's doing decent unit testing unless they are doing the unit testing through the application layer down to the database, but they tend not to be unit testing the database layer itself as a separate thing. Is that what you see as well? Absolutely. Uh, I agree with you 100%, Greg, and... and you, um, you, you've done a, a, you know, you've, you've seen the same things that I've seen, and, and did a great job describing, um, you know, what, what I'd like to talk about. I, I, when I speak to, especially to .NET user groups, and I do that quite often, um, I, I get a chance to talk to them. I, I love talking to them about testing the database, and um, that, you know, they, they all. I ask them at the beginning of the talk, how many people here are doing unit tests on your database, and a lot of hands go up. Almost all, as you as you reflected, mm. and then I ask, well, how many of you are, uh, you know, running those tests through your data access layer, you know, some class that you built or that you bought, and almost as many hands go up, if not all. Yeah. And as you know, then it's how many are not, how many are actually running T-SQL unit tests, and usually I'll get one or two out of a hundred, and. Um, and those people are really not .NET developers; they're database developers that happen to show up for the meeting because I was in town. So yeah, indeed, it, it, it is very rare, and I and I, I make that distinction, and I, I mean no no disrespect or no harm to, to to you know to our fellow database developers out there. There are some who are who are brilliant people who are advocating uh, testing in that manner. But I've all I was trained as an engineer. And I did electronics engineering and electrical engineering both for you know, more than a decade. And my experience there is what really is, is where my testing comes from. And you always test at the lowest possible level. Yeah. And if you're not testing the database, um, you know, as a standalone in and of itself, if you're not testing that that portion, I don't care if you're writing T-SQL in Query Analyzer 
or it, you know if you're using a tool like um, like like the the DB unit tools that are out there or um, or database additions testing functionality however you're accomplishing it if you're not testing the database in and of itself you are testing more than one thing and as we all know if you get a failure you have to ask yourself at that point where did, you know where's the source of the failure is it my data access layer for instance or is it a problem with the database and i don't think you really know from the results of that test yeah now listen i suppose for a lot of the people that listen then we have to then start with a presumption that most have not been involved in unit testing Correct. and i think one of the things that we first need to define is that we're not just talking about testing an application because everybody says oh i always test what i do but right. when we're talking about unit testing maybe if i can get you to define exactly what we're talking about well i'll uh, you know i'll give you my understanding of unit testing and and you jump right in with yours and and we'll we'll both add our our experience to the to the conversation <coughs> pardon me my my understanding of unit testing is that you are really looking for uh, how to say this the right way. You, you're not in search of values per se. You are more in search of things like like data types and column names, and it's more of metadata is what I'm after when I perform a unit test. And I, I unit test. Um, I, I do exhaustive unit tests on stored procedures. Um, I would say stored procedures are probably the things that need unit testing the most. They're most suited for what software developers uh, are talking about when they mention unit tests. And the idea is, did this return something or nothing to me in in the format that I expected? You don't really, if you start looking at what the values were and did it return the right thing to me, then you're into functional testing. And a lot of times those lines are blurred, even in the software world, and I, I personally don't have a problem with it, but I do like to make the distinction so that people, at least you know, start with the you know with the proper terminology and and the you know the right idea. You can blur them all you want; both are important. But unit testing typically looks for did the you know did the column name I expected come back? Was it the proper data type? Yes, yeah, so I, I suppose the probably the the point we're trying to make also is. That we're then we're also really talking about detailed automated testing, and Absolutely. and that's probably a distinction from uh, people just saying, look, I I do testing of my application, or you know, as I build a proc or something, I test the proc. But right, uh, the, I think the key the key thing is that we're saying, look, as you get more and more code in the system, you get to a point eventually where every time you make a change you still want to be completely confident that you haven't broken everything else that you did before. That's and correct. if you can express what should happen in each case in a test, then that's just simply an automated test that you keep, and then we run suites of tests so that when we when we do change something, we can change it with much more confidence. Yep, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I think those suites of tests have value that is, is just now starting to be realized even in the application world where people are starting to store them and use them as their regression suites. And that way they know that they haven't um, broken backwards compatibility with a new version. 
Yeah, I think also, and it, it also gets around the fact that if you're trying to test uh, at a, a more manual or a higher level thing, I mean, it can also be very, very hard to, to go through, particularly if you, when you get to the level of like a, a user interface or something. It's fairly, you may say, well, I go through and test my application, but it's very, very hard to do a very detailed test. And the thing is, as you get more and more complexity and more and more possibilities, the number of tests just exponentially increases. So They, they do. And there's some wonderful applications out there, uh, frameworks, if you will, for, for managing these suites of tests. Um, I've, I've really enjoyed working with Team Foundation Server, and I found it does a great job of, uh, of automating those test runs for you. I'm not going to detour down that road too much, but you know, it, there's there's a whole lot of functionality in there for uh, for for testing, and there's more stuff on the way. I guess I should say, for, yeah. As, as 2000 SQL Server 2008 is released, there's even more coming with uh, included in a service pack that will be released for Visual Studio. So good stuff is on the way. There's good stuff there now, and. It's really early in the game, Greg, and I think that's why uh, a lot of database professionals haven't, don't have a lot of experience with testing is, is it's, it's relatively new to their world. And, and that's fine. It, you know, I don't want your, your listeners to feel like they're, they're missing out, they're behind the times and, and that, you know, they've missed some new trend. I, I don't think that, you know, the trend is, is very old at all. I think it's just started in the, in the past few months and maybe a year to a year and a half. That you know, anything close to um, a discussion on on database testing as a uh, you know as a practice. So it's really young, and there's plenty of room and and lots of need for people to get involved and start adding their ideas to it. And you know, I follow blogs of um, of some some giants in this field, and and people who just blog about it occasionally. And I find the most interesting things uh, seem to be generated from the people that have application development experience, such as yourself, and you, Adam Mechanic, uh, people like you that are, you know, that have, have seen both sides, um, understand that database development is in a state um, very much like application development was in maybe 10, 12 years ago when, when test-driven development was first proposed. Yeah. In fact, we should make a quick shout-out to Adam Mechanic. Uh, Adam's a friend of ours who... Uh, runs sqlblog.com amongst uh, many other things and an active MVP. And one of the things that uh, Adam has been running at conferences for some time, I've been to sessions where he was uh, talking about his T-SQL unit framework and so on, which is just one of the frameworks that's out there. But, but the, yes, there are a number of people that are sort of... Uh, been sort of starting to push and look at how how this needs to be done in the database end. So I suppose we should start with the uh, another point is that detailed unit testing in databases has always also been considered hard uh, or harder than it is in application development. Have you got a feeling as to why you think that is? Yeah, I, and I agree with that assessment. I, I think it's it's largely because. You know, to get metadata that, that you, or to test the metadata that you receive from a, a, a stored procedure, it's it just, you know, T-SQL is the language that you want to use if you're running this in, in its most native form, if you're running a, a test, a unit test. And it's difficult 
to to query those results and and check to see did I get the right column back? Is it the right data type? Those are tough things to do. They're Actually, that's uh, that's a good point too because uh, we should just maybe cover off some terminology when you're talking about those things. That the the, the testing folk uh, would consider those assertions. Exactly. And and so an assertion could be things like did I get the right number of columns back? Uh, that's right. As you say, um, are the column, do they have the right names? Uh, like, for example, did somebody go and rearrange a select statement and now the columns are coming back in the wrong order, perhaps, for something where that matters? It may or may not matter. Um, but things like, did I get um, uh, a di- multiple sets of rows back or things like that? So we can... Or, or did I get a value that I was expecting? Or did this query return no rows for some reason because that's what I'm expecting? And so on and so right. on. Or it gets worse. Um, you know, and it, well, in some ways it's worse. Some ways it's easier. If if you're asserting an error and you're trying to trap um, the fact that you violated a um, a foreign key constraint on an insert statement, and that's that's a little easier to do in T-SQL than it is to query the metadata that was returned to you. From the uh, from the actual query or, or call to a sub store procedure, yeah. Um, but that's where these tools. That's where I really get you know really get excited about the frameworks that are out there, and I, I focus on database addition simply because that's what I have the most experience with. I won't make claims that it's the best. It's certainly the best I've worked with. But yeah, um, so this I'm is drawn to now right this, away is, this is this um... is. Yeah, just make sure I've got the terminology for people that might not be familiar. So we're talking there about Visual Studio Team Edition for database professionals. That's correct, but it was renamed when they released it for 2008 to Database mm-hmm. Edition. Yeah. And, uh, yep, the same, or Data Dude. Everyone knows Data Dude. Everybody knows it as Data Dude, and uh, <laughs> all flows from uh, the group that uh, Gert Draper's heads up. And, again, shout-out to Gert. So. Absolutely. They have done some fantastic work just from a, just from a raw software development perspective. If you look at the work that they've cranked out from, from their first CTP release at the end of May in 2006 until the, the June CTP of the GDR, that's, that's a phenomenal volume of work that they've, they've released in, uh, what, 25, 26 months. Um, just hats off to that group. Um, I don't know when they're sleeping. <laughs> they are certainly cranking out some fantastic code. Actually, one of the, the things that we should also talk about is, like, why does it even matter? So it, it's, uh, I, I think, to me, one of the, the things I find in the, in the uh, more DBA side of the world is, again, people tend to be very hesitant to make changes ever. Where in the development side, uh, words like refactoring, I mean, people are much more prepared to endlessly revise systems so that they improve. Exactly. And I, I think there's there's excess on both sides and room for, for both you know both mindsets to um, move towards the middle. And but when I think about that, Greg, I think about what makes a good production or operations DBA good at their job. And when I really think about that, I, I understand completely that change is bad. It's the enemy. Mm. And, and people that are of that mindset uh, tend to make really good operations and productions DBAs. They're they're already you know that they're already wired that way for lack of a better term. And 
So being in a, a position where they resist change, where their knee-jerk response is no to every question, um, really isn't, it, I guess if, you, if you're there and you need to get something done that day, it's a bad thing, but I don't think it's a bad thing overall. I think it's really um, conducive to, to you know, the, the long-term stability of an enterprise data architecture. Now, on the same side, um, you know, or I'd say on the flip side, developers um, do need to make changes. They do want to tweak things and, 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 and make improvements. That's the, that's the goal. Um, unfortunately, sometimes what they change um, makes things worse, or that what's more common is nothing happens in a vacuum. They make a change here, and it does improve the code or the application in this one spot, but it brings some server to its knees later on trying to do some other query. And, and so we have this natural sort of contention that's built up between database administrators and um, I would say database developers and, and application developers, certainly. Some database developers do a good job of bridging those two, um, but database development as a field is fairly young as well. Yeah. So I agree with you, and I, you know, I don't think that – I don't see that as a bad thing. I see that as, as, um, as diversity in a technical sense. <laughs> yeah, in fact, uh, the, the ability to insist on keeping stability – uh, in an enterprise can be an extremely important thing. The, uh, at, at, but I think also one of the, the a lot of the ones I talk to, uh, a part of the reason they tend to be very resistant to change is also that whenever they make a change, they have absolutely no idea what they're about to break. I, I agree with you, and I think that that's one of the things that is probably the most valuable thing that testing can bring uh, to the enterprise and, and to that individual. Actually, I think it helps both sides of that equation because um, if if developers, application developers, can uh, can see that when they make this change, um, and, and you can have, you know, performance testing is huge. We've been doing it for decades in SQL Server. Uh, we didn't call it that, but that's what we were doing. We were checking to see that when we execute this suite of statements, they all return within 30 seconds or each individual one returns sub-second if we need that sort of performance. But Actually, that's a good point, is that that, yeah. that can also be a very valid assertion, is yep. that this statement needs to return within a certain period of time as well. Uh, because, again, that, that fixes the, the sort of scenario I often see where a DBA has gone in and built, say, a covering index or something like that, but right. then someone's added an additional column to the query... Right. The query still runs, everything still comes back fine, but it takes now forever to return. Right, and and that's one of the uh, default assertions built in, I should say built-in assertions in, in database edition, is the, the query executes within a, a defined number of seconds. So they're, you know, they're aware of that. The, um, the, built-in, um, the built-in assertions are powerful. The, um, the, you can add your own test conditions. Um, I've, in fact, you mentioned one that I wrote uh, because it wasn't in there, and it, it seems dumb unless you run into that that, cha- that time when it changes on you and breaks everything. Um, is the columns, the number of columns, and the column yep. order? I wrote a test condition for that, and I'm not sure, but I think I put that in the book, um, the the book on testing. I think I used that as my example mm-hmm. on how to extend 
database edition with um, custom test conditions. Yeah, actually, so that was that was one that I was very pleased about. I, I I did express to the team when I looked at this in early versions a frustration with the inability to extend very many parts of the product, and one that we did talk about in those meetings was the ability to build assertions. And yep. uh, I know Sachin Recky, uh, we should also um, do a shout out to um, Sachin uh, went through and. I know had went and went to a lot of trouble of uh, building, making sure they're built in, an ability to build new assertions. And on his blog, there's some good examples of how to build an assertion. So you, you're not limited to the list of choices in terms of what can I check when something uh, executes. You can build your own assertion to say, yeah, this will, you know, this particular column will somehow relate to some other column or whatever the thing is. Absolutely, and and I'll I'll second your shout out to Sachin. He he taught me how to write my own custom conditions, so that's where I learned it was on his blog. So it's great great information out there for doing that. And, yeah. and yeah, you can. That's that's um that the particular example that I just used where I checked that the the proper number of columns came back. They have the they have the name I expect, and they came back in the order expected. Um, that's one I use a lot for testing the results of ETL, um, Extract, Transform, and Load. And I've done quite a bit of work with um, SQL Server Integration Services, and that's used typically to load data warehouses. And I found uh, kind of you know, just on a, uh, I guess on a lark, I found that I could use database additions unit testing functionality to, to test the uh, results of my ETL. Yeah. In fact, I'll get you to pursue that a little bit uh, in maybe the second half of the show. In fact, I would like to get some specifics of of what you've done there. The um, now with with the unit tests, I suppose the uh, so we're saying that one of the main reasons we want to do this is that we want to be confident that when we make changes, we haven't sort of broken everything else that's already in the system. And part of the reason for doing that is it also gives us more visibility into or more ability to make a change. So the idea is that we have uh, our interface to the external world. We can define in terms of a set of tests, and then that allows us to make changes and know that we don't break all our clients in some way. Now, one of the... um, There haven't been a whole lot of uh, books or things published in this area terribly well. Um, I did recently read Scott Ambler's book uh, called Database Refactoring. I don't know, did you manage to read that one yourself at all? I haven't. um, I saw your review on it. Uh, You posted a a book Mm. review at at SQLblog.com. And I have, I've read, um, I think I did, I saw it somewhere and picked it up and read it to the first, you know, bit of it. But um, I haven't read it, and just because I haven't had time, that's the only reason why. Yeah. It's just that when I look around, again, it's an area. There don't tend to be many books or texts that that people refer to in this area. And, again, it's probably because it is still a bit in its infancy. Um, Now, in Scott's book, what he does is he describes the different types of refactorings that might happen with a database. Now, for those that aren't sort of familiar with refactoring, uh, I suppose... Maybe if we talk about what is a refactoring uh, from a, an application development side of things. Right. Um, well, my understanding of refactoring is 
I started doing it with web applications. So I'll describe how I would build a web application and then refactor it. And typically I would start by building um, an active server page that had some VBScript and, and, and JScript code in it. And as that, that page developed, um, that you know, I would see portions of that code that could be reused. Um, and, and so I would first maybe I'd have 50 functions. And I may look at those functions and you know then pick out these five are actually doing the same thing if I was to add a couple of parameters or arguments to the to the function signature, I could reduce this to one function and have it do you know all five of the things that i'm I'm having these other five do so that's one example of refactoring um, another is uh, for for whatever reasons, I decide to change the name of a variable. On my web page, or, or you know, and I, and I want that that name change to be propagated throughout the rest of the the page. So I would I could do rename refactoring there. But typically, when the the real um, I guess the real intense refactoring occurs when I get to a spot where in that development I look at it and go, this could really be served best if I moved it from the presentation tier into some sort of business layer or middleware tier. And, um, and pull that code out and plug it into a, a DLL and then call it from there. Now, the parallel in databases is, is there, but it's not straightforward. Rename refactoring makes perfect sense. If you decide to, to rename a column in, in a table is a great example, um, then, then you don't want to break all of your stored procedures that are addressing that column by the old name. So you'd, you'd like to do a, some sort of search and replace, but it's not that easy um, because uh, sometimes the column names are the same. For instance, uh, we'll use the ID column in, in a customer's table. Um, you could, you know, you could export and script out all of your your stored procedures and do a blind search and replace in Notepad and and change all of your ID columns to to customer ID. But you've also changed the the ID column of the product ID table, <laughs> the product table, to from from ID to customer ID, and, and so forth. So you you know you don't catch. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is search and replace blind search and replace doesn't do it uh, doesn't do justice to rename refactoring in databases. And the same goes for table names. Although that's there's not a big risk of having tables named the same thing in SQL Server. Um, at least not now, because schemas are relatively new. We've That's right, yeah. But we, could, we could have tables in different schemas with the same name. I mean, that's we possible could. now. Yeah. And, and you, I, I believe I read some of your history. You've done database development against other platforms. Um, I've done a little bit with Oracle and a little bit with DB2, and I I'm, was, was pleasantly surprised to see schemas uh, as a as a formal object in SQL Server 2005, it's um, it's really it adds a lot to the architecture and to uh, to code reusability and especially security. So, yeah, but, um, yeah I should say, I mean, uh, I would still normally, in general, if I was designing the whole thing, try and avoid having tables with the same name in different schemas. But it, it's just too. now a possibility. There, I mean, there are other reasons why I tend to like schemas. But, um, but refactoring, I guess to finish up that whole idea of refactoring is, it, is it's, it's changing from, you know, it, it's almost like you're brainstorming in code. You're just kind of writing down everything that you need just to get things running. 
and now you need to go back and clean it up. And it may be that it, it needs to be cleaned up just because of just because of aesthetics. It's hard to read. Somebody else is going to come behind you and and check this out. In the case of a web page or even a stored procedure, if you've got more code in there than you need, it's going to perform generally worse than if you can shrink the code. Um, and and so you've got a p performance reasons for for refactoring. And I guess the um, you know, the last bit would probably be for code reuse, although there's been some interesting work um, in the past few months written about, I've seen statements written uh, basically that say don't write code for reuse anymore, which is, you know, an interesting take on, on mm. that. So, yeah, I suppose one of the things we should probably define then is that most refactorings involve changing almost the quality of the code without changing the behavior of the code. That's a great way. Yeah, great definition. So, I mean, a good example, I was at a uh, consulting site uh, a few days back, and when I look at some of the worst performing code, again, I found a proc that when you look at it, I, I can see that it was far from optimal, but the thing about it that struck me was just how many people had hacked around and made changes to it over a period of time. And right. eventually you look at the, the entire code and just think, boy, that, that just really needs to be rewritten. And I suppose that's the thing about unit tests is that if, if I go in and I say, look, I really want to rewrite this proc, even that I need to have somehow really good confidence that it behaves the same at the end as, as before I started. That's correct. And so, yeah, I think many of the refactorings are really just constantly improving the code. Um, where I suppose rename refactoring is an interesting one because you're actually there talking about changing the perhaps the database model and improving that, but potentially right. in that case also changing the behavior uh, because you might be returning different column names and so on. Yeah, and it, it comes into play because, you know, the database applications are are different. One of the differences between them, them and, um, you know, and forms or web applications are that they are never the, you know, they're never the presentation layer. The user is not directly reading, you know, from, from SSMS or query analyzer. They're always, uh, coming through some presentation layer. And there can be five, six, seven layers built on top of this database between the user and the data. And I, I, that's why I think database, uh, the, the unit testing is so critical because you know, a lot of these engines, I mentioned business objects earlier, but a lot of engines now, including reporting services, uh, reporting engines have uh, some sort of semantic layer or some device that maps um, the names of, of fields that a user can, can interact with, maybe build criteria with, to the, the names of, of database columns. So it becomes, you know, it, it sounds like something that that maybe to people who haven't experienced this before, it sounds like something that should be a no-brainer that, you know, just don't ever change the column names. Well, sometimes you need to because maybe you're adding a column, you know, adding a column to a table or to the data that's being collected, or maybe it's not even you. You may be supplied with more data, and it, the names are are similar. So you have to rename the column that's there or even add a column. And the unit testing there will tell you what, what's going to break. 
Yeah, and and the good point you made earlier is that simple search and replace techniques aren't enough uh, as as you get any level of complexity in the database. And the one of the the beauties of a product uh, like the Data Dude product is the fact that it uses an instance of SQL Server as a parsing engine, and and it does deep parsing. So it's not just doing a simple search and replace. I mean, T-SQL is a, a, a pretty messy thing to parse and uh, sure. and to sort of work out the syntax of, but it does a great job of drilling down and finding the appropriate objects. Yeah, it does. And that's one of the changes that they've, that they've made. The, um, the June CTP of the uh, General Development Release, I think is what it stands for, but it's GDR. One of the changes they've made is to move away from the requirement of a local instance of SQL Server to manage that. Now, I'm not sure how they're accomplishing parsing now, mm. but they were relying on the relational engine for that, at least some. Well, one of the things uh, I have seen discussions of uh, is that they seem to be building um, a standalone code-based parsing engine for T-SQL, uh, which because the thing is, you'll find now that there are a number of products which are finding the need to do parsing offline or disconnected from SQL Server. Um, an example of that is reporting services, where when you go in to configure uh, the code inside a report, uh, again, it does parsing of the T-SQL. Now, one of the things that I've found incredibly frustrating in reporting services is that the parsing there is different to the parsing in SQL Server itself. And so I can often add statements in reporting services that are completely valid, yet reporting services will barf and whinge at me and tell me that that's not valid. And I often wish I could just say to it, look, just go with me on this and just send it to the database. <laughs> Delay validation. <laughs> yeah, and uh, but the thing is it's trying to interpret and deal with it itself. It, it's a bit like if you have a, an inquiry where we say where, or a, 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 sorry, a, a predicate where you say where something in, and in T-SQL you can't say where something in at variable name. Uh, right. You can't just put a variable there. But in reporting services you can. And the yeah. thing is it, it will then take the variable and it will pull it apart and rearrange it before it sends it out to SQL Server. Now, so clearly it's it's applying completely different rules uh, than if that same statement was sent to SQL Server itself. So right. there seem to be there seems to be a, a push happening in amongst the products to build a sort of a separate standalone parsing engine because there are different parts of the different products so are requiring the ability to do this. It would not surprise me um, if this thing if the intent is now to use the same thing. But I'm I'm simply guessing at that point. I I'm, I would agree, and I have no knowledge about that. But yeah, that, this would be a, a wonderful. You know, I, I I see I see you know tons of uses for that, uh, both in the um, in Data Dude and in reporting services. Also in integration services, we have the same we have similar issues there, and um, really for just standalone um, you know query generation. I would think it'd be, it'd be nice to to add that into Visual Studio development, and if anybody's writing a, a key SQL statement, be able to validate that. I think the other area that that would probably uh, help a bit with is the move of the product towards supporting other database engines as well. 
Well, and um, I don't, I'm not sure if you are aware of this, but they they made um, a change in the GDR of, of Data Dude to take it in that direction. One of the things they've done is they they call it a provider-based model now. Yep. And um, they have already uh, made an announcement that they're partnering with IBM to support DB2. Yes. So yes, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I couldn't remember if it was public or not. So that's good. Well, <laughs> it, must, it was announced on Good Squad, so I'm going to say I'm going to claim that. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> excellent. <laughs> but yeah, it's nice to see them doing that. And um, yeah, you and I, you know, we were we were talking to the teams um, back in 2006, and um, you know, and and that was some of the things that came up even back then was uh, there's some of this functionality that could be really useful uh, standalone or aimed at other engines uh, and or provider based and I remember although it's it's beyond the scope of what we're going to talk about the data generation I remember looking at that and going man that'd be great if we could do that against any database yeah indeed and I've had in fact we'll talk a bit later about data generation because that is another aspect that comes up pretty regularly so um, in not even necessarily in relation just to unit testing. But look, yep. that's probably a good point to take a break. And when we come back after the break, we, we'll look at drilling to some, some real specifics on how this it all works. Great. As well as community resources such as this podcast, SQL Down Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular, the first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www.sqldownunder.com. Welcome back from the break. Um, again, as we normally do with everyone, uh, is is there a life outside SQL Server? Oh, absolutely not. Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I, I do have a, have a life contrary to uh, to popular belief. Um, I am the proud father of five children. Wow! And um, yeah, everyone says that. And but here's the real shocker: um, they range in age from 26 years to 11 months. So Interesting. That's the, yeah, that's, that's the, uh, the, big, the big shocker there. I have two daughters from my first marriage. They're 26 and 24 and obviously out on their own and pursuing uh, gainful lives. Um, and my, my second wife and I have been married six years, and we have a five-year-old son, a three-year-old daughter, and an 11-month-old son. Interesting. But, but this is it. <laughs> no more. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's it. Yeah, that's oh, no. enough. <laughs> so, with eleven months, so I suppose you're you're at the at least sleeping through the night and everything stage again. Uh, oh goodness, no! Even though we we don't have sleeping kids, our, all of our babies are uh, are kids that wake up. And in fact, my wife and I joked about it the other day because um, she usually gets up with them. She's nice enough to let me sleep, and. Um, but uh, the, the two older kids, the five-year-old and the three-year-old, are usually up and down between the time they go to bed, which is usually around 8, 8.30 uh, local time here in, mm. the, in the evening, and about 4 a.m. 
Well, we should mention so where you're based too, Andy. So. Oh, I'm in. Uh, I live in a little town called Farmville, Virginia, and it's a very quaint uh, little community. We have a, a couple of um, colleges in town, which is is nice. I'm in Virginia, uh, in the U.S., and um, I live out in the kind of in the woods. I've got uh, about three acres of land, and across the road is a couple of hundred acre um, field and pasture. And it's it's very rural, but because I'm a half mile through the woods from one of the colleges, I get 10 meg DSL here and pizza delivery. So <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> so I grew up in the country. That's that's why I talk this way. Um, I'm not taking this accent. This is really how I talk. And, <laughs> and so, but yeah, uh, life is good. I, I do a lot with. Um, with uh, SQL Server, obviously, and I do a lot that's sort of in between that and, and a personal life with the user groups. And and most recently, I, w- I was very fortunate and honored to be asked to serve as a past regional mentor. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, I know who I. Yeah, <laughs> and you're, you're my boss. So I get to, we're working together um, regularly now, and I'm really excited about that. It's a, it's a fantastic opportunity. Uh, it's, it's really neat to see to see PASS uh, focusing on this in the way that they have. And it's been something they've needed to do for a while, and they, they've known that. And I think they've tried, and it's it's growing. It's a very iterative process, and this is the way all good things come to be. Yeah. So I'm, I'm in fact, I should, well. should make a quick shout-out to the PASS folk. And uh, the one of the things that, yeah, there there is a, a major change this year in, in uh, the amount of focus that's being placed on the chapters. And so... Uh, we should mention so that if anybody has a SQL Server user group out there uh, that isn't currently a, a, a chapter or part of PASS, uh, just, yeah, certainly pop pop us a line and uh, or make contact, and uh, we should have a talk about things because uh, I think one of the things, a criticism that came up years ago is people used to say they would they'd sort of have their group and they'd join PASS and then, very little had happened from that point on. And a lot of that was resource constrained. I mean, that was a, a lot of the problem. And, sure. but there's, there's a big change in the wind and, uh, and lots of things happening. And, uh, I think if, uh, people should have another look at it. I agree. I, and I think it's very exciting the, the changes that's going on, um, in and around PASS as an organization. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it is truly a, a large developer community, a large user community, I guess is the best way to say that, a database professionals. And uh, more so than, than any other organization that I've seen, it is very much driven from the ground up. And that's, that doesn't happen in isolation. Um, the, the problems that you mentioned with growth and, and resource constraints, those are were all very real. And, and people that complained about it had legitimate gripes, but... My goodness, the work that's been done in the past few months alone is, is astounding to, to address that and more. So no, that's great. Please check it out if you're, if you're listening. <laughs> that's and good. and you of course, we've got a chapter. And of course, there is the, the main summit coming up this year, which, uh, uh, again, I hadn't really mentioned on the show uh, that much as yet, but the summit in November uh, in Seattle. Uh, promises to be easily the biggest summit uh, that, that's ever occurred. I, I'm really, really looking forward to it. Uh, it's the fact that it's based in Seattle. There's a huge involvement from uh, the Microsoft product group in the SQL product group, and just the number of MVPs that are going, the number of uh, the, the people coming. It, it's just looking amazing. And yeah, I agree. Uh, 
The other one to watch out for is that the past chapters, another thing that's going to be happening uh, around the probably the September October time frame almost uh, more so than a little bit sooner uh there's a whole series of things related to well we can't call it the launch of SQL Server 2008 because it's already happened uh officially the launch but uh, yeah <laughs> the kind of uh, the the RTM appearing phase <laughs> uh, there, there will be a number of events surrounding that and uh Again, quite a, a number of those are going to be coming out from within pass, so I'd encourage people to keep an eye out for that as well. Yeah, we um, uh, this, we're recording this earlier, obviously, than the people that are listening, but just last night we had the July meeting of the Richmond, Virginia SQL Server Users Group, and I, um, I helped co-found that. And um, we, uh, we, we decided to do an event as well. We're, we never did the Heroes Happen Here launch event, the local one, so we we intentionally postponed that, um, thinking that when it got closer to the SQL Server launch, we'd do that event. And now there's um, you know there's talk about uh, maybe being able to do even more than just a normal uh, Heroes Happen Here event now. So we're excited about that possibility. Yeah. I won't go into any details That's or right. any surprises, yet. <laughs> but we don't know yet for sure. But we're we were excited to see. Um, to, you know, to hear some chatter about the, the possibility of some more stuff coming out of that as well. So, I'm, yeah. yeah, I think I think you're right, Greg. I think it's going to be a lot of, um, I don't know what to call them, but something like launch events that yeah. are happening with SQL Server coming out. And I think a lot of SQL Server people, to be fair, were uh, were disappointed and a little put out at the, you know, the hoopla uh, around Visual Studio and Windows Server 2008 coming out. And, and the fact that SQL Server was rolled into there, even though we were, you know, four to six months away from seeing any code, um, you know, that's released. So, but at the same time, you know, I don't, I don't, when that decision was made was months before, and I don't really, you know, I, my, my take on that, Greg, is I don't do marketing, okay? I'm, I'm yeah. not good at it. It's not my bag, and I won't tell them how to do that, and I don't expect them to tell me how to write C-SQL. <laughs> Yeah, we'll we'll kind of keep it there. <laughs> That's good. But back on, I suppose, unit testing then, um, okay, and testing of databases. I suppose one of the the real difficulties that comes up is that you need to be able to build tests in such a way that the test can be rerun endlessly, and you can pick up and and know that every time you run it, you're not having leftover shrapnel from previous tests causing you a problem with the next test. That's right. And And so your take on how to do that? There's a couple of approaches that I found that are popular. Um, One is that you you generate data, and you do that every single time. Maybe even you, you tear down the database and recreate that every time. When you're in the testing and development phase, I find that that works really well. That's the way I recommend that you do it. Always redeploy, and and, and you know populate your data with uh, your database with data. Uh, however, you want to derive that data. Um, and more and more, especially in the United States, and that's I'm, I'm constrained to the U.S. That's where I usually work. But we have regulations for health data and for uh, financial data now that. Uh, Pretty much require us to to not use production data anymore. 
Um, yeah, that's that's a really good point because one of the questions yeah. that endlessly comes up is I often ask people is to say, when you're doing testing, where do you get your data from? And I tend right. I tend to get a couple of responses. One, the most common still is people say we get a periodic copy of the production database. That's yeah, number one. A uh, second yeah. one that tends to come up is people say we get a scrubbed copy of the production database, but that's very rare by comparison. Right. And the third one is that we just have a pool of data that we've typed in. Yes. And, and those are, those are, you know, those options are all, uh, from a technical standpoint, they're all valid. And, and when you're talking technically speaking, production data is going to be the best. And it's going to be the best to test with and work against. But if it's not legal <laughs> or, or, you know, not a generally accepted best practice, then you have to come up with some other alternative. And those are, there's some good data generation tools out there. Um, I know that, that Redgate has one. Um, I know that you can use a data generation tool, uh, a task in SSIS to do it, or you can generate data from SSIS. I've used it before. I've used T-SQL to, to generate data, but um, the one that I'm using mostly these days is the one built into Database Edition, and I found it to be uh, very flexible. And because it's built into... The, uh, the engine that I use to develop my database project in as well, I can, um, I can deploy this project and have the, the project itself configured to automatically um, either, you know, either tear down the database completely and re- redeploy it and then populate it with data or do a, an incremental build and truncate all of the tables and then, and then drop data into it from the data generation tool. And it can be as... Um, you know, one thing that's nice is it preserves the relationships. It can be as, as gibberish as you want it to be. It can be, you know, uh, Unicode characters using all of the Unicode character sets. Uh, there's a lot of control that you have uh, over the, the data that's been out there. And it's also one of the features in Database Edition that, like custom test conditions, is extensible. So you can write your own data generations, uh, data generators. Yeah, I think this is another area that has really good power. So, the to give people a specific example of that, if we said uh, instead of just here is a text field of a column of some type, and um, what I can say is uh, perhaps this is a US phone number that goes right. in here, and I can build a data generator that generates U.S. phone numbers, or I could build one that generates Australian state names or something like that, so that uh, when I generate the data, it doesn't have to be just gibberish that, that gets generated. I can, I can specifically say, look, here is the type of data and here are the rules for forming that data that would right. typically end up in this column. And I could then, it's not just... Uh, on a column basis, I could then reuse that wherever that makes sense in the database. Um, yeah. The other, the other thing about it is, it, it isn't. Uh, people are concerned that it just generates a repetitive thing. Again, it doesn't necessarily do that. You have options as to are there null values and how, how what percentage of them are nulls. And um, th- there's also sort of logarithmic or curves that determine. How numbers get allocated and so on—it's pretty yep. clever stuff. It is, and what I do like about it is, is even though you don't have to have uh, you don't have to have it be repeatable, if you're using it from a testing standpoint, repeatability is good. Yeah. So it uses a seed value, and it starts with uh, some seed value between I think zero and nine in most cases. Yeah. And 
every time you deploy that database, uh, you know, from then forward and have a, a data generation plan is the, the collection of data generators that's used to populate a table or a collection of tables, um, it will put essentially the same data out there. So you can write tests that go after specific uh, state names in Australia or specific U.S. phone numbers and, and try to return the rest of the information to, to test your store procedures that retrieve that data for you. Actually, that's a really good point because the uh, and and yeah, the the seed does do that really nicely. So the idea is that if I found a problem while running a test, the last thing I'd want the next time I run the test is to get a different set of data and then not be able to find the problem. That's and correct. so the beauty of this system is that it's initially randomly or sem- de- defined how you want to do it based upon a specific seed value. But if you use the same seed value, you get the same data every time. But then you right. can simply change to a different seed value and get a totally different set of data. And the point that, that you made about uh, once you detect an error or, you know, you have a test result, an unexpected test result, or uh, as we say in testing, an assertion fails. A failed assertion, yes. <laughs> yeah, a failed assertion. Then, then um, you know, the process that, that that process at that point of, of correcting it is one thing. That. I think moves into a development arena, but for a tester, for somebody doing database testing, a failed assertion means that um, that you need to write. Uh, it can't. Well, I'll say this: it can mean that you need to write another test, um, or or improve your test because you may maybe you're missing something because you had tests that tested the data moving through the process, flowing through it. It can mean that. It can mean that something bad happened and uh, you know that that a change was made and introduced into it. So. There's uh, it, that process. I guess my point is that that process is lends itself to iterative development and, and testing. No matter what type of methodology is being used to develop the software, the testing portion, at least the writing of tests, I find to be very iterative. And um, I use it a lot when I'm when I'm doing database development of any type, whether I'm writing a reporting solution, an SSRS, or an integration services solution. Um, I find myself using that that iterative process. I will I will do some work, some quanta of work, and I will think everything is okay, and I'll send it downstream to the the next people in the process, the the people who are testing the front end or using that data to load some engine. And most recently, I I did a project where we were doing master data for SAP, and we would hand that data set off to the SAP people. They would load it and they would come back to us and say, well, we found issues with, you know, these values in these fields. Well, the very first step I took as a, a database developer was to write a test that detected those, those conditions that where the assertion failed on their end. Yes, that's, that's so such I'm a good point. I'm now taking the test and, and moving it, I'm moving it down the pipe to, uh, to my point. I'm, I'm taking it down in granularity, moving closer to the source of the issue. And then when I generate, I, I go and start doing my development. And this is what we call test-first development in the, in the software world, or, or test-driven development is a more general term, where you write the test first. And, and when you execute that test, it fails. So you get green, you know, you get red-green at least. Red, yeah. If everything goes really well, you fail first, and then you, then you, you succeed after you've corrected the issue. And, and that, you know, after a while of doing and this particular project lasted seven months. So I had quite a suite of tests written by the end of this that each time I'd, 
I would make a change. And, and this happened often towards the end of that cycle. I would make a change in, in one little place, and it would affect a test that I had written six weeks earlier. That yeah. would start failing because I'd introduced some, some more error into it. So yeah, I suppose that's when the value of testing really paid off. Yeah, there's two two points there that come up. What one is, and this is something I see all the time. Um, the first is that when somebody comes up and says, "Hey, there's this problem," it's interesting. Yet yeah, the thing that you do is you don't go in and start modifying the code. The thing you do is you go in and build the test to make sure that you can now detect because that's something that should have been part of your testing but wasn't. So you right. now build the test make sure the test can detect what the problem is, then you fix the problem. And yep. and that way, you've then got a built-in test that forever in the future, as you make changes, will keep checking that same thing. Whereas if you just dive in and fix the code yourself, uh, you're back in the loop that you, something else may occur in the future that would then cause a, a similar problem and you wouldn't detect it. So the aim of building the test when you find problems is is to basically build a list of the things that we know also have gone wrong that we're checking for. Um, right. And but one of the things that you did raise there then was test driven development, which is another one that's on my list of topics that I was going to ping you about. So we have been talking about how people build tests, but then a totally different approach is test driven development, and so. This is where, as you say, people build the set of tests, then they build the code. So the idea is that we get this specification up front. We say we know what this thing is meant to do, and what we do is define all the tests. Then we write just enough code to make the test pass. Yep. And I, I find that as a that also is a very iterative process, and I, I use the terms iterative and organic interchangeably, but I think both are, are accurate descriptions of, of a way to, to do software development. I'm not going to say it's a, you know, it's a silver bullet. Um, I've got a blog post in, in progress now that, you know, that says silver or lead. <laughs> Which type yeah. of bullet are you using? Is yeah. it solving all your problems or is it just weighting everything down? And but, if I had to I, ask you, in the application development side or sure. developer side, what's your gut feeling as to how many people do actual test-driven development compared to the number that do unit tests? You know, in the academic sense, Greg, um, I would probably say it's a minority, um, certainly a minority that do true test-driven development. Um, And there's a lot of really good reasons why it it is. On version one, test-driven development is an expense. Clearly, it's an expense. It slows things down. And if, and if if the application that you're building has has this nature up front where you know that you're going to put out a version 3 at some point in the future. I think that's really a, a driver to go for test-driven development and take the hit on version 1 because I've found that, uh, and I, I, I have uh, documentation, I can't, probably I can't publish it. Uh, maybe I need to scrub it some, but I have documentation to, to, that validates in, in a, a several projects that when you hit version 3, Test-driven development, at a minimum, is a break-even proposition, simply because yep. of regression tests and backwards compatibility. That alone, uh, that you know, that alone. And then when you add the quality of the code that you get from the version three forward, 
um, it's it's just an it's a it's money in the bank at that point. It begins, yeah. you know, more than making up that difference. But up front, yes, and and not, you know, unfortunately, a lot of our projects, uh, database and, and application, we simply don't have time. We're told get this done yesterday, and, and yeah. so we don't we don't do this these these practices. And you know, in that that project I mentioned that lasted seven months, which is an incredible amount of time to work on a database related project. It still was a rush job because it was so huge running data into SAP from a, you know, a collection of companies. Uh, seven months was just barely enough time to get it done. Yeah. In fact, it's an interesting point you raise there as, as to whether test-driven development, that's right, makes more and more sense at, at some point in which you, you get into the project. So and the thing is, in version one, there's often so much churn as well in a project that it yeah. can be fairly hard to do all the tests up front. However, once you get a system that's a little bit starting to take shape, then when you say, hey, I need another proc, I need another function, I need another whatever, you know what that thing needs to do. And right. so the idea of being able to go through and describe, instead of you describing it just in a document, what you do is you describe it in a set of tests, right. and then you make sure you've built what you need to build. And I find that um, when I personally do this, I will typically write one test at a time. I'll write one test and then one one proc. Yep. And and that's that's how I start. Now it, it's also very typical for me at the end of some phase, either a minor release or uh, just some spot where it makes sense to do so. I, I figured a block. I finished with a block of functionality um, to go back and write things like. Um, more specific functional tests and tests that test for the proper error being raised, um, odd things like that, but things that are still important. So those Actually, that, that's a good point, too. One I should throw in there, that's a, that's a great example, uh, where one of the things is that let's say I do something that should cause a primary key violation. It's not good enough to just check that an error occurred the thing you want to check for is that it, it was that error that occurred because yeah. maybe it was the insert failed uh, for, for some other reason not to do yeah. with the primary key violation. Yeah, and you've got a, a great mechanism in T-SQL in 2005 uh, for doing that. We've got uh, try and catch yeah. now built right into T-SQL. And if you, if you catch the error message, you can return... The, uh, the the error message function, which will come back to you as a var car, or I think it's an invar car, mm. but it'll come back and and you can test to see is this the error that I received, and if it is, then that's a way to assert an error. And it's difficult for people who haven't done testing before to understand how valuable that that uh, you know error asserts are. But yeah. it, about ten percent of the time, uh, you know, in my experience. Applications run exactly like they're supposed to, and, and everything happens exactly like you anticipate. And so you can write an application in, in one-tenth of the time that will perform under ideal, uh, ideal circumstances. But my, uh, my experience also says that in order to do good engineering, and I don't use that term lightly, and in order to do good software engineering and solutions engineering, you need to account for... Uh, you know, user input errors or, or bad data or network failures or any host of other conditions that are going to, uh, that, that could happen. And I find that that makes up about 90% of my code. 
yeah. is dealing with these, you know, these invalid inputs and, and that sort of stuff. So anyone, I, you know, and I, we've all, you know, we've all been there and done that. When I started writing code, I was one of the people who would write the, the ten percenter, you know, code and. And when it would break, I would say, well, somebody did something they shouldn't have done. Well, that's, <laughs> that's okay if I'm writing it for me. <laughs> yeah. But when customers start paying me money to, to write code, they, don't, they really don't want to accept that. They want, you know, if you put a text box there for a date field and somebody types in something that, you know, can't be interpreted as a date, um, then, you know, if you're the, you, you haven't written a solution for them. You've, you've written something that is just an error waiting to happen. Yeah. And you know, so it's you know, there's, there's an art uh, to this. There's there's engineering involved, and there's there's certainly you know a lot of science and stuff. And but again, if that's been the breakdown that I see. About 10% of the code is for running under ideal conditions, and 90% is for managing exceptions, reporting errors, handling faults gracefully, um, not taking the server to its knees or shutting down the line of business, that sort of stuff. Yeah, and, and testing certainly helps with that. I mean, it's. I don't think you know. I don't want to present the, um, you know, that that I believe that if you do um, unit testing, if you write all the unit tests, that it's possible to achieve um, zero errors. I don't pretend that for one minute, but I do think it's it seriously reduces the number of errors, and and it does so um, enough to provide a positive return on the investment. Of time and effort that you put into good unit testing. Yeah, that's good. Now, one of the things that comes up as well is that with a database, getting it back to a known starting or state is a lot harder than it is with an application. And because we talk about things like does a proc run in a certain period of time, well, unless we have production volumes of data then that's an irrelevant test. So one of the things that we do need to do is get to that point. Now, data generation is one option, and and as we said, it's very, very flexible. But the the issue is obviously we can't do that on every single test. I mean, so we, we'd take a very, very long time running every test. Um, right. an, another thing that uh, I found very useful that I don't know if you've... Uh, Dealt with within the testing and all, but is using database snapshots. Have you had any luck with trying that or tried that at all? I have used database snapshots, and as long as I'm not uh, violating a best practice or a rule, um, you know, as far as dealing with personal health information or or financial data, um, those I found have worked have been very effective. And there's all sorts of techniques for um, for performance test uh, setup for lack of a better term, there, that, that have gone back for, for a while. There's, there's ways of, of loading the uh, statistics from a production database into a, a development database or a much smaller database, and you can get some idea uh, or some better idea of, of the production performance of it. And these, goes, these go way back to the days of SQL Server 7.0 and, yeah. um, you know, and, and before, um, and the uh, things that we would I think do the- in order to simulate it. Yeah, I think the thing I was sort of getting at is that what I find I find useful is to use data generation to populate a database, but okay. but then when I start my sets of tests, what what I will do is generate a, a database snapshot, run oh, all the tests, and then do a restore from snapshot, which right. is a, a very quick operation, and sure. at least then I can do an enormous number of tests 
and know that I'm always starting with the same clean slate every time. That is a great way to do it. And um, and our, our co-worker, Eric Veerman, has, uh, has done a, a little bit of similar work with um, using snapshots in, in this way to to be a uh, kind of a poor man's um, transaction manager. Yeah. <laughs> he'll, he'll take a snapshot and put it out there and, and run against the original database and then do a restore if the transaction fails. And he's had some success with that, uh, doing large, uh, large data loads with SSIS. Yeah. So it's an interesting, an interesting use of, of snapshots. And I don't know that uh, when Microsoft developed it, they, they realized that that would be a, a popular use of it for doing essentially transaction um, transaction management, but it really has turned out to be a fantastic tool for that. Yeah. Um, I mean, it makes yeah, perfect yeah. sense in things where you tend to only have a single user doing things because otherwise exactly. doing a restore from snapshot is, is a scary thing to be doing. But yeah. the, um, yeah, I, I do find it, uh, where you have your, your own copy of the database that you're working against when doing testing or something, I find that very, very useful. Uh, in production scenarios, database snapshots are kind of interesting, but the, uh, I, I find they're very limited, uh, in, in that it's very hard to be able to just refresh a snapshot if you want the snapshot to be something that people can just use as a, a, a point in time thing. Uh, yeah. It, it, it's yeah. I find them a little like there's still some more functionality surrounding snapshots that are, that are needed. I agree, and uh, you know, we've certainly all of us have had uh, have had uses for for snapshots, and I agree with you. I think there there could be some more in there, but it, from a testing standpoint, that kind of moves the the next use case beyond that. Is if you are in a situation where the database that you're you're executing tests against are for whatever reasons, being used by other users, and you know some some techni- techniques for managing that. Um, I've seen people put and and leave um, dummy records in the production data and in the production yeah. databases, so that so that they could uh, migrate those databases down to either a quality assurance layer or some sort of um, you know stage just below uh, production. And then run tests against that, and that way they could get uh, a good profile of how the different uh, objects are going to perform, different queries, different store procedures, and functions are going to perform in production. Now that's, you know, I find that typically in larger enterprises, uh, mostly folks with SANs, because they have the disk space to hold a copy of production somewhere other than production. Yeah. And that's another way to do it. And then uh, people go so far as to put. Um, bit fields on the end of large tables to indicate that whether this row is a test row or not, or they have some sort of status uh, indicator so that people know that when you do reporting against this data, do not go and bring in the uh, the test rows themselves. Yeah, so the pain, pain with that, of course, is you've got to remember to put the predicate in your clause in your queries, <laughs> <laughs> which is that's true. And I've uh, had that bite me too. Yep, guarantee that 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 will come unstuck somewhere along the way. Listen, one yep. of the things uh, we're also briefly touched on the try catch. Uh, I don't know about you, I was a little surprised to not see the abilities of that expanded in this version. Um, oh really. Well, good example. Well, things like in uh, normal, say, .NET development, where we have try-catch blocks, we have the ability to do things like rethrow an exception, for example. Um, things like that. I, I thought there are things that have just 
just been kind of missing out of the, the implementation. I really was kind of hoping that in 2008 some of that might have got enhanced a bit. Well, I've been able to do that manually. I have to reconstruct a raise error, you know, a raise error statement from the error number and error message, um, you know, functions. But it's, yeah, I agree with you. It'd be nice to just write a throw statement in, uh, like you can in, in any of the .NET languages and just have the, the entire error object thrown uh, to the next level. Well, the, the problem current. is uh, that uh, Bob Boachman pointed out in one of his sessions um, a couple of years back, the the problem is that you can't rethrow many of the errors. And so things like any of the, you can only throw a user error, where if you have, oh. say, uh, an 823 occurs or one of the, uh, the thing is you can catch that, you can do right. some processing with it, but you can't rethrow that 823 back to the, the surrounding code. Uh, because you've got no way of throwing a system error. So, yeah, there there are a few... About 50,000 or higher. Yeah, that's yeah. right, 50,000 and something or other. So I, there is a... If I look at they've done a lot of really good work in T-SQL in uh, 2008, but it's just an area that I really was expecting something more might have come along. Yeah. Well, have they... I, I was... You know, I kind of missed the family. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's another one, is that the idea of having a finally block. Now, I think they were presuming, because a finally block in .NET code is mostly used for cleaning up non-managed resources, I think they figured there was no equivalent use of that, but I think it's become quite clear that a finally block would be very, very useful. Well, the the response I got when I asked about that was that they were thinking you would do the try-catch in a transaction. Um, if you're that concerned about it, and you would just roll back, uh, well, the error yeah. or the error itself would roll back. You could roll back in the catch. So, okay, I can I can see that too. But I would like the option. I'm, I'm sure there's a use case out there, although not oh, yeah. mine. In fact, <laughs> a good example is that you have some uh, things in your code that are not transactional, like variables and things like that. That's uh, a yeah, so, I mean, you can't just roll back and have them go back to what they were. So, uh, again, having a finally block, yeah, there, there are uses where, where that would be nice. Yep. That's good. So, now I'm just trying to think. Uh, the other thing that you mentioned, um, the last one I wanted to cover off is you were saying you were using uh, the DataDo product, basically, um, to do with integration services. And so specifically, what sort of things were you trying to do there? Well, it, that, that's really interesting. I've, um, I've, done, I've done some manual testing um, for, for years on ETL. And you want to, you know, if you're doing a data warehouse, you want to check to make sure that the data you've landed in your warehouse is the data you've collected from your source that has been um, proper manipulation of it because you're always manipulating that data to get it into uh, a summary of some sort. Uh, you're doing some sort of aggregation as you're doing ETL. And it doesn't matter if you're using T-SQL to, to do the ETL or SSIS or some other tool. But the first order of, uh, of ETL testing is just raw record counts. So that's, that's a nice way to, to do it. And sometimes those record counts are equal uh, between the source and the destination, you you have 5,000 customers in your customer table, and you run your your process to move that data into a a data warehouse. You want to check your customer dimension and make sure that after that process runs, you in fact have 5,000 customers there. That that's pretty straightforward. Now, where it gets complex is 
when you're applying some sort of aggregation to it and, and you're storing it in your data warehouse at a different grain, so maybe you're doing a, a summary, maybe you're rolling up the customers that you have by state or province and country so that um, you don't have an actual uh, individual customers in, in that dimension in your data warehouse. You, you may not have a need for that. Now, I, I, as I say that, I can't imagine a data warehouse where you wouldn't want the individual customer's data, but um, I have seen some odd things in, in my years of doing data warehousing. Um, I think the oddest was I saw a, a time dimension that didn't go below the week. Yeah. <laughs> You'll see the, uh, odd things with grain. It just depends on the company. But my oh, and look, I could imagine some scenarios where you know the volume of data is just crazily high. Um, the in right. fact, one of one of the things I was having a chuckle about a, a month or two back, there was a, a comment I saw in one of the internal news groups where somebody had exceeded big int for an identity column. Wow! And uh, <laughs> and uh, there's not a lot of good workarounds at that point. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> My goodness, what do you do? Make another big ant column and compound <laughs> primary key? or <laughs> And uh, conversely, one of the ones that we were all having a, a bit of a chuckle at in one of the uh, uh, the MVP groups the other day was uh, somebody in their data model where for a gender column they had defined it as big int. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and everybody was sort of chuckling about what the, yeah, the, the possible <laughs> use of that could be. <laughs> Well, I have a funny story about, about the gender column I, uh, that I'll, I'll share briefly. Um, mm. There's a when you're loading data warehouses um, and, and using certain methodologies, there's a, a a way that you can say this this value should never change. And of course, when defining a a, a person dimension, I had put gender uh, defined that as not changing, and then of course it, at one time it changed and blew, yeah. it blew the process <laughs> up. And I thought, well, this is some typo or something, and it was about 7 million people in this particular database. And yep. no, in fact, the gender had changed in the source, and <laughs> Correct. it was real. And so I learned then, uh, fixed attributes, be careful. <laughs> if it can change, you know, not, and I'm not making any value judgments, there's nothing wrong with that, I'm just saying, <laughs> from a technical standpoint, pay attention. Yeah, so, things can change. That's good. But yeah, well, I um I wrote a um I've, I've written some tests, uh, test conditions, uh, just a, a few that I've started using um, pretty regularly in testing data warehouses. One of them is I was I was uh, it was kind of cool you brought it up and it's it's one that seems so simple, but in data warehousing you're you're so far removed from the source system um, that and they often forget that you're there. And they'll make changes to the source system so that the line of business will process faster or they'll pick up some information that they weren't acquiring before. And they'll add that to the source table. And, and oftentimes that will break the uh, the load process, the ETL process, or the, the data warehouse itself won't, won't pick up that data for some reason. Mm. Or you'll all of a sudden start getting duplicates where there should be none. Yep. And, and those sorts of things happen. I mean, that's just normal development. But being able to detect... The uh, the number of columns and their names and their order, I found to be uh, and and you wouldn't think order would be that big of a deal, but sometimes in reporting applications, um, whether they're off the shelf or homegrown, um, they, they use ordinals yeah. for the fields. So in that case, uh, it, it becomes very important. That field could change name, but even worse, it could change type, 
And if it goes from a, a, a numeric field where there's a sum applied to it to a character field, then the reports stop working. Hmm. And, and so these problems can you know, propagate and grow throughout the enterprise as one little change is made. So I've, I've, I've applied tests there, and, you know, and scheduled, I've been scheduling those tests to run periodically, those types of tests. Hmm. Um, the tests that I run often and sometimes after every execution of ETL are the, the types that do aggregation tests where I look for the counts, uh, the number of rows in the source compared to the number of rows in the destination. And I have uh, I coined this phrase called ETL instrumentation, and mm-hmm. I've been blogging about it out at SQL Blog. I haven't written anything since uh, I don't think I've written anything in 2008 yet about it. But um, it's there's at least six parts to this series, maybe seven, and four of them have been published. Um, it works out to 120 pages now um, of those four, and it's uh, collecting data from your ETL process and. When I run tests against that data, that's what—that's really what I'm testing. I, I collect enough information to give me a, a confidence that my ETL process has performed correctly in a timely manner and that there's integrity, that it's moved data as I wanted it to from the source to the destination. And the first order of that is do the counts match or are they, and not really match, but are they the expected count? Yeah. And you'll have to read more to find out what more about what I mean about that. But... um. The second order is um, doing sums or, or, or some sort of uh, aggregation on numeric fields. Um, yeah. Financial data, is you use dollar amounts. And I have actually exceeded um, you know, the, dollar, the currency data type. I've yep. done that before in these sums, and in those cases, I'll do a modulus with some ridiculous you know, random number. <laughs> yeah. Do a mod of that and look for a result there. So... In essence, it's a way of doing hashes or checksums. You want to come up with some sort of way to say, does the hash or checksum or mod or, or sum equal that its counterpart in the uh, in the database in the data warehouse itself? And that, I, you know, I collect that data using ETL instrumentation. Now I'm testing it using um, test conditions and data dude. And that's, you know, right. I, I find it, it's fascinating to tinker with it. Again, it, it, it lends itself back to my old engineering um, training, and I'm an engineer at heart, I confess. So, yeah, yeah still, it, it, you want to know that what you did worked, and you want to have that process measurable and repeatable, and you want those, those, the measurement and repeatability of it to continue long after you've left the project as a consultant. Yeah. So that's that's why I do it that way, and I end up building a one additional data mark for every ETL project I do, and it contains this data, and um, and the tests and reports that um, that execute on it. That's great. Well, listen, that brings us really to time, and so I suppose first thing, um, where is there anywhere we'll see you or things that are coming up? Oh, thanks. Uh, yeah, I'm, I am speaking at the Past Summit 2008. I'm going to give a talk about SSIS scripting, and um, for for those folks who don't know, in 2008 we now can do C sharp. So yes, that's a that was a big addition. We have Visual Studio tools for applications and the ability to do VB.NET and C sharp. So I'll be there. Excellent. Well, listen, thanks for your time today, Andy. Uh, I think all we're really hoping is that. Uh, because this is still somewhat in its infancy, uh, I'm just encouraging people in, in the sort of data end of the community to, to get out and take a good look at, at unit testing.
I agree. And thank you, Greg, for the opportunity. I really enjoyed it. Great. Thank you so much.